Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I am Annie McManus. Welcome to Changes. We kicked off May with Deaf Awareness Week and the wonderful Rose Ailing Ellis. Well, this week it is Mental Health Awareness Week and my guest on Changes is someone who has been really open about his mental health journey, specifically his experience with psychosis. It is actor, director and now author David Harewood. You may know David for his role as CIA counter-terrorism director David Estes in Homeland. He's from Birmingham, born to parents who were originally from Barbados. In 1997, he was the first black actor to play Othello at the National Theatre in London. He has played Captain Poison opposite Leonardo DiCaprio in Blood Diamond, the Martian Manhunter in Supergirl, and a US agent who flirts with Olivia Colman in The Night Manager. But all of that only happened after he gave up on his home country of England and went to America. It seems on the face of it that David's career has been success after success. But if you have read or heard about David's recent memoir, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, you will know that it was very, very different behind the scenes. In the book, David details the racial abuse he suffered in his life as a child and as a working actor and the terrifying psychotic episodes that this racial abuse ultimately fueled. He was sectioned twice under the Mental Health Act and has subsequently expanded on his experiences hosting and producing a BAFTA-nominated BBC documentary called David Harewood, My Psychosis and Me. In this episode, we talk about all of it in detail. Uh, The voices in his head, the things that led to that journey, how he managed to come out and assimilate into, you know, being a professional actor after going through these huge psychological upheavals. And of course, the racial abuse that he suffered growing up as a black British man in the UK. David's story is raw, real and incredibly important to listen to. You're not going to forget this one. Enter the podcast, David Harewood. So the book is called Maybe I Don't Belong Here. Beautiful book. Tells a story about you and your life, your childhood, growing up in Birmingham, and then going through a psychotic breakdown at the age of 23. Obviously, it zooms out on your whole career acting and journey through becoming a very successful actor as well. But why do you think the book and the documentary had this huge impact on people? I think, it, I mean, that's a good point, a good question. I mean, I think partly they were amazed that someone at my level would reveal so much. But I think it's the frankness, the honesty, the openness that people really, I guess, w- were struck by. Myself and my agent perhaps at one point thought we would be somewhat attacked by, you know, the right-wing media. Anybody who says anything remotely critical of this country can leave themselves open to abuse and attack but we've had nothing which has been really extraordinary and it's been genuine it's been honest it's been open and it's been authentic and uh, as somebody who's been through the experience I think it's difficult to attack somebody who's actually been through the experience and is trying to talk um, honestly about those experiences and the causes of those experiences so I think I'm sort of uh, yes just, just in a better place to be able to talk about it yeah Okay. Well, I found it really interesting because we talk about so many different facets of change on this podcast, you know, all the different ways change can affect a human being. Mm. But there's one quote that I read from this amazing woman called Krista Tippett, who has this podcast called On Being, which which I love. She wrote a book called Becoming Wise, and it, it says that change always starts in the cracks. That was one thing that really struck me about your journey was this idea of a crack in your own sense of self Mm. and these two different versions of yourself that you talk about in the book. Would you mind, David, telling me about that kind of separation in terms of your sense of self and how that came about? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, uh, 
you know, starts, I guess it starts with that, the, you know, the little black boy sort of playing in the street and thinking that he, you know, having watched the, the likes of Tommy Cooper and Benny Hill and Dick Emery and Morecambe and White, loving the programmes my father watched, loving, loving watching the television and feeling English, feeling British, feeling like a, a little English boy. And then having the old white guy outside my house at five or six years old, kind of leaning in and angrily telling me to get the fuck out of his country. And that really sort of shattered my perception of what I was. First of all, I didn't understand it. I was like, what does he mean, go back to where I come from? And it rattled around in my head and then I suddenly thought, oh, hell yeah, maybe I, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I'm not English. And that sort of then sat in my psyche, the idea that I wasn't English. And, you know, whenever, so whenever one, any, anyone kind of glibly told me to go back to where I came from or, or go back home or, you know, you don't belong here, there was always this nugget in, in my brain that kept thinking, I, I'm not really from here. But I didn't really understand it. I didn't really understand what that, that meant. So I think that was the, the schism. That was the first sort of crack and that sort of widened over my life. The more and more I assimilated into British culture, white friends, white girlfriends, listening to pop music, you know, white television culture, white popular culture, the more I assimilated into that, and then obviously going to RADA and then coming out of RADA, and once again, the world saying to me, you're black. When that really happened, the rejection from the very thing that I was seeking affirmation from, when that rejection came, I think that really hit me quite hard. I struggled to cope with what that rejection meant because as far as I was concerned, I, I was yeah. British, I was English. Uh, I didn't have any other, I didn't have an alternative uh, to, to fall back on. As far as you were concerned, you were an actor, but people mm. kept calling you a black actor. So yeah. it was this constant kind of pulling you back to what you looked like and the colour of your skin as opposed to your craft and your talents. Yes, but but also I think pulling me, and this is what I've only just discovered, you know, maybe pulling me back to um, my blackness, my identity, which is a question that I hadn't really attended to as a kid. I I I, I don't think I had really uh, answered those questions in, in you know in in my own mind. Uh, I hadn't really settled on those questions of black mm. a black identity because there wasn't really anything. It's difficult for kids these days to think of a a world without the Beyonces and the sort of the, the black the, the black icons that there are now. Mm. There was, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there were no black icons to sort of pin your identity on. I guess I just hadn't really solidified that black identity. So when my outer identity crumbled, I was completely, completely lost. When I was rejected by that white society, that white world, uh, I, I was lost. And I didn't have any anything mm. to, to hang my, hang my, my own sense of self upon. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It really does. It really does. So let's talk about your, your childhood change. Um, and if you don't mind, let's get a little picture of what it was like growing up for you. It sounds like from your book that you had a, a really happy house um, as a young child. A great house. You know, lots of laughter. As I say, my dad loved those old British comedy shows, sitcom shows. So... And then they, him and my mum had these great laughs. Uh, and so it was, I just, it just seemed full of laughter. The house always seemed full of laughter. Noise and playing with, my, whether it was playing with my friends or playing with my brothers. So there was a, a sense of innocence and joy. Uh, you know, there were elements of fear, you know, because, you know, people were much more vocal racially. So you'd walk down, the, you know, just walk into the shop, somebody would shout from a car. And so you'd sort of tense up and then it'd be gone and you'd just forget it and just walk on. Or you get chased by skinheads uh, and run away, lose them, get back into your normal life. So there was a sense of sort of fear. But then yeah. once the, that fear subsided, just busy getting on being a kid and enjoying myself, riding my bike and, and, uh, mm. and playing with my friends. So it, it, was a, it was a combination of real joy uh, and innocence uh, with moments of extreme fear, I think, as a kid. And David, did you ever, as a child, have a conversation with anyone about racism and what racism was, kind of get some help in understanding this kind of element of fear that was so prevalent in your life? 
No, um, I, I, you know, I think my mum tried to mention mentioned it a few times, and, uh, and I I did try and talk about it with my dad, but um, he 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 wouldn't talk about it. I think he felt very uncomfortable right. talking about it, probably because he'd experienced something like it himself coming from the Caribbean, uh, and I've 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 spoken to other friends, you know, born around the same time as me, who, who a lot of them have said that their Caribbean parents very rarely talked about. Uh, racism, the racism that they they experience because it's traumatizing. It's deeply, deeply traumatizing yeah. thing to talk about. So, our generation are better at talking to our kids and we're better mm. at talking about our experiences. But they kept a lot of it to themselves. I, I guess as yeah. a, as a consequence, we never really understood quite what was happening. Yeah. Um, so then, talk us through your childhood change, please, David, um, about your parents divorcing. Yeah, I guess that was probably the moment when sort of cause my, well my parents divorced because my I mean my dad had a had a uh, a breakdown himself and was very different when he recovered i don't think he did recover actually my dad right i think it was a very shattering experience for him i think he felt quite shamed by it never spoke about his time in the institution and and it was only just the other day I was talking to my mum about it and she actually said that he was quite fearful that he would be taken back in if he did talk about it. I think he was quite afraid that he would be sectioned again. So I think he tried to just keep a lid on his how he felt about everything, which explains a lot because he just never spoke about it. And also also might explain how he maybe never recovered because he wasn't able to... Yeah, come to terms with it, I guess. Come to terms with it. Sure, yeah. Discuss it, talk about it, live, you know, uh, um, understand it, I think, even. So it became very difficult and he he changed. I mean, a lot of people do change after a psychotic episode. It's a very, as I say, shattering experience. And some people are much more timid when they they recover from it. They lose a lot of confidence. Um... He sort of became quite belligerent and, you know, wouldn't accept that he was ever ill, wouldn't accept that there was anything wrong, sort of everybody was wrong, he wasn't, he was right, he was always right, there was no, you know, he knew the best and that, I think that became quite difficult to to live with. Um, So they, they eventually divorced and as I said, I as a kid, I was always, you know, it was a quite a joyous household. And it was always joyous most around Christmas. The house would be full of food and mum would cook and presents and stuff. And so I always had this idea as a kid of Christmas being this time of joy and togetherness and, you know, going into the cupboard and there'd be cakes and food and biscuits and, you know, lots of lots of stuff. And I always remember after the divorce, that was never the case because, you know, the carer, I mean, the primary care, mum was, was not in the house. And so the cupboards were a bit bare and... and um, I think a lot, I don't know whether a lot of people who's, who have had divorced parents find this, but going to two houses on Christmas Day is bizarre. It's just bizarre. David, how old were you? I was 13 around that time, 12, 13. Um, and it's really funny because when I wrote that in my book, my, a friend of mine that I was really good friends with at school, like sat next to him in school, he uh, emailed me and he said, uh, I had no idea that that was going on. You never told us. Never mentioned it to any, any of my friends, you know. But it was a sad time because that was all. I guess that was the end of childhood. Yeah, of that innocence, and also that is also the start of you really changing physically, physiologically. Mm. You know, as a teenager going through puberty, mm. so you have all of this uncertainty in terms of who you are and who you're becoming physically. Mm. But then that's when a kind of certainty at home really helps. So I guess when that's pulled apart, I can imagine it must have been very difficult. Yeah, I, I know that you know adolescence is a quite a common time for kids to have breakdowns. A lot of, as you say, phys- yeah. physiological changes, chemical changes in the brain, a lot of just generally changes, whether it's moving away from home, go to university, whether it's being mm. around different people. So that's a, a, there's a lot of changes going on around that time. And I guess, I guess because I was burying all these emotions and not understanding them, it's just like shoving everything in the cupboard and just hoping that the doors yeah. don't fly open, you know. And I think there was, a, there was a certain sense of that, of just putting more stuff in the cupboard not talking about it and I, and I think eventually the my breakdown happened just everything was just coming out just coming out coming out yeah 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 so you went to you went to Rada mm-hmm. 
the most prestigious acting school in the UK. And it sounds like you had a really like positive time there. Are your memories good of that time? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, I loved it. I mean, I wasn't very good at school. I didn't pay that much attention at school. I didn't really take school seriously because I didn't really get school. I just enjoyed the camaraderie of being around my mates. That's what I love about actors, you know, and about acting is I love being in groups of people with the crew and the other cast. I love it. I love that environment. I'm a people person like that. So I guess that was what I was finding at school. Um... But I, I wasn't very academic and I just didn't get it. Uh, I think we all learn at different times. But at RADA, I was like, oh, I understand it. This word is an adjective, a doing word. And, and you know, this is all about, you know, I loved the study of Shakespeare. I loved, you know, when the directors would sit down and we'd go through the script and we'd break scripts down and really understand English literature and understand what Shakespeare was doing when he was using alliteration and what he was doing when he was using these... I will pour this pestilence into his ear so that, he, you know, I was just all this amazing imagery that was contained in Shakespeare. Mm. I, it just set my brain on fire. I loved it. And I was consumed with uh, a love of literature, whether it was kind of Russian Dostoevsky or whether it was uh, Pushkin. Mm. I just loved it. I loved, I loved, I suddenly fell in love with literature in a way that I had never really done before. And um, yeah, that was my sort of, my waking up, I think I wish that I'd paid more attention at school because uh, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it, you know. Um, it was a teacher at school that saw the opportunity or the potential in you to act, right? There was a lovely story there. Yes, my teacher, well, well that was before I left school. You know, I'd been in a few school plays yeah. and, and uh, I was just a classroom clown. You know, I was a very mischievous, naughty boy who couldn't, sit still I just couldn't sit still so I was always messing around which was very annoying for the kid for the teachers very annoying but at the same time I wasn't sort of violent or I wasn't um disruptive or you know it was just being, yeah. being naughty so at the end mm. of school one day I got a call to go in and speak to one of the teachers and he said what are you going to do when you leave Harewood and I, and I was I said I don't know sir because I've been in the school library for weeks and months Going from A to Z through the school library, you know, you know, uh, you mm. know ard, ardvark keeper, art, archery, everything from A to just right <laughs> the way through. No, nothing, absolutely yeah. nothing was was ringing a bell. And he, he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, sir, I don't know. And he said, uh, look, we, we're talking in the staff room and we think you should be an actor. Like it was just like a light bulb moment, Annie, that sort of, lit me up and I went wow and you know I didn't know what how you did how you did that how you earned money what it was all about but it just lit me up and uh, I completely was inspired and from that from the minute he said I can still if I listen as I said I write in the book if I listen closely I can still hear him saying it it's just yeah. it was just the birth of the rest of my life and, um, wow, isn't that amazing? Thank God he told yeah. you that. Thank God Thank he just God. didn't leave it as a yeah. conversation in the staff room. Yeah, uh, it literally, this house, everything that I am, mm. um, I can trace back to that single moment. Amazing. I mean, I'm sure you would have found your way to it, but it might have been a lot longer and, and so lovely to be able to go and get into RADA and then have those three years of learning mm. the craft. And interesting as well that you say that all of the literature and the kind of academic stuff that you weren't that interested in school became alive through the prism of acting. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, acting really, really set me alight and the whole idea that you could move people, you could hold yeah. people. And I think, again, back in the day... You know, there's the, um, what was his name, Frankie Howard. He'd do these rambling monologues to an audience and he would have them in the palm of his hand. And, you know, he was extremely funny. And you could hear the audience, like, just to, just to, it would make them laugh. And I, I was always, I always marvelled at that, that you could hold an audience's attention mm. just with timing and talent and what you had to say. Mm. So when I started to act, I, I, I loved that. I loved the idea that, People are listening here. People are mm. paying attention. I can hold people's attention. The power of that. That's why I love that. That's why I love about theatre. Mm. Even more so than TV and, and, and film. When you're in the theatre, 
And everyone's sitting together and it's very primal. Mm. Very primal. Everyone's listening to a story. Mm. So why could, that's why it sent me nuts that people, that colour became an issue. I was like, what the fuck has colour got to do with this? Right. We're all listening to stories. Mm. That's why it just sent me, one of the reasons why it sent me so mad. The, the nugget of it for me was just the idea that you, we're all sitting together experiencing a story. Mm. And, and that's the magic of acting. That's the magic of theatre for me. The, the minute you started bringing in all these, you can't do that because you're this, you can't do that because you're that. Mm. It, they put boundaries on my world that hadn't previously been there. Mm. And that's when I started to unravel. So let's talk about that phase then. So I think the word you described in the book is a series of bruising experiences coming out of RADA mm. and then entering the mm. professional world of acting. Um, and a few, mm. a couple of things happened that kind of started to trigger the unraveling, right? Well, again, yeah, you know, the, I, I guess I was very naive, you know, but I think we were the first generation of um, sort of trained drama school black actors. And... Again, the establishment critics weren't very kind to us. Of course, it's not really Romeo and Juliet, and he's not really playing Romeo. You can't really play Romeo because you're black. Romeo's not black. You're black. Romeo's not black. Why are you playing Romeo? All these sort of things started politics and sort of barriers were suddenly being put in my way. And the re- I said the reviews were very personal about who I was and what I looked like. And so I found myself suddenly sort of faced with this, um, the constrictions of people's perceptions. Right. At school, I could just put on a silly hat, put a northern accent on, and I was from Yorkshire. And everybody laughed, and everyone thought it was really funny. But suddenly you do that on stage at the, at the National, and someone goes, well, of course, there's no black people in Yorkshire, and he doesn't really talk like that, and the character's not really black. And those things started to really get under my skin, that I was sort of being dismissed because I'm not really playing Romeo, I'm sort of... Um, it just really, just really started to undermine me. And some of those, some of the things that was... The, the, the whole dis, being dismissed was very painful. Mm. And um, re- reading about that in, in the reviews was extremely painful. So I had to learn not to read reviews and, because they were very personal. Yeah. Very, very personal. Yeah. He looks more like Mike Tyson than Romeo and... Oh, God, that one's just... Horrendous. Horrendous. So, yeah, I just had to sort of stop um, reading them. Yeah. So when did you first start noticing that something wasn't right about how you were thinking, about your thoughts, basically? Uh, well, I was on stage in, in, in Derby, at the Derby Playhouse. I was playing um, Sloan. Hmm in Entertaining Mr Sloan, who's a very devious character, a very dark character. But I, I, I remember re- reading a review, in, in, and, and I hadn't really been reading reviews up to that point. Uh, but someone said to me, oh, look, we've got some great reviews, really great reviews, you really need to read them. So, like a fool, I did. Right. I mean, a lot of them were great. And, but, but then I came across, something was a letter in a, and it was in a black newspaper, a local black newspaper, which really was going after me saying, you know, I, I should be careful about my choice of job and, you, you, you know, Mr. Harewood is not showing the black community in a good light. So, you know, and, you know, black people who go and see this place should demonstrate how much they object to Mr. Harewood's choices by walking out of the production. I thought, wow, that's deep, man. That was really deep. So now I felt like I was being rejected by not just white people, but also black people. So, and I remember a couple of nights after that, I, you know, I was doing this monologue. I've heard a kerfuffle in the audience and I sort of looked out and it was a black couple sort of walking out noisily walking out which is what the newspaper had said that they should do it happened it kept happening throughout the production it just kept happening more and more and uh it was really unsettling me and I and then I started getting really angry about it and incorporating this this anger into my performance I'd also had a, a, another job so, uh, it's it's hard to talk about but um should we say, and, uh, um, a more mature actress was sort of getting rather close, uncomfortably close to me. And right, I just didn't okay. know how to deal, just didn't know how to deal with that. Mm. So there was just so much going on that was just really making my world 
very uncomfortable. I wasn't enjoying my career at all. Mm. Uh, it was a combination of both things. This, the, the elder actress that, that was sort of getting uncomfortably close to me, um, plus the sort of doubts about my, you know, being rejected not just from the white space, but also the black space now. Yeah, yeah. All, all, all of it just combined to making me very, very, very unhappy. When that final job finished, I just came back to London and just caned it. I just started drinking yeah. and, and smoking. I just I wanted to get high. I wanted to get out of my head. Sure. And one of the worst things you can do when you're unstable is to drink and smoke. I wasn't sleeping. I was spiraling. There's a there's a real rush when you in your early days of psychosis. Real rush of mm. dopamine. And when, especially when you're not sleeping, it's it's actually rather exciting. And lots of patients talk about this mania that you 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 have. And it was exciting. You know, I was sort of, um, I knew I wasn't well. I knew I wasn't sleeping, but I had these crazy ideas. And a coincidence would seem like an amazing, magical moment. And yeah. I thought I could control it, you know. But And many people do. Many people who live with psychosis live with these moments of mania. Uh, and then maybe they'll crash for a couple of weeks or a month and spend a, spend a month mm. in bed. I knew I wasn't well, but I just ran away, I ran away with me. And David, how did you know that you weren't well, though? Was it a sense? Was there something that happened that you're like, OK, this really makes me, this is not right? Uh, I had some really good friends who, who just kept appearing. And um, okay, got you. I'd get out of bed, walk into my living room, and there'd be my school friends, my best mates from Rana, all sitting in my lounge. And I'd go, oh, hey, guys, as if they'd just, <laughs> as if they'd just pop round. And then I'd start chatting and laughing with them, and then I'd sort of black out. And the next thing I know, I'd be, I'd be walking past Houston Station at three o'clock in the morning. I'd go, what am I doing here? I, I, better go, I better go home. And then I'd walk home. Next thing I know, I'd black out. And then I'd be in Islington at two o'clock in the afternoon. I had no idea what the hell I'm doing there. So I'd head home. And then I'd walk in and my mates would be sitting there. And like, oh, hey, guys. Same thing again. Just losing, losing consciousness. In and out of lucidity. In and out of lucidity. And I knew something wasn't right because, um, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night sweating and hearing voices. And that's that's when things started to really get scary, when you're hearing voices in completely independent of your mind and imagination. But like a loud echoing voice in your head. Scary. Really, really scary. Yeah. You describe it in the documentary as as, as being clear as a bell, just just arriving in your head, like indisputably real absolutely real and that's that's again that's a that's a condition of psychosis which it, it is an extraordinary condition because you know you do suffer hallucinations and um they can be extraordinarily real extraordinarily real and i'm i'm very lucky that i have a comedic uh rather calm kind nature because I did absolutely mm. everything this voice told me to do. In a, now, if, you're, if, you, you, if you haven't got that kind of nature, that voice may tell you to go and jump off a bridge. Yeah. That voice may tell you to go and yeah. kidnap somebody, hurt somebody, harm somebody. Um, so I was very, very lucky. Yeah. I was very, very lucky. Very, very, very lucky. So your voice was Martin Luther King, and he told you to go and put, a, put on a suit in a clothes shop in Camden. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's laughable. It's but it's extraordinarily. No, 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 no. The way you describe it, it really isn't. It's so visceral. It makes total sense. And what he said. Sorry. Would you mind telling us what the voice of him said to you? The voice of Martin Luther King appeared in my head and said, "Look, you know," he said, "The minute and this is guy, this booming American voice is in my head," and he yeah. and he said, "Look, you know, the minute I was shot and assassinated in Memphis." Uh, when at the moment I died and lost consciousness, the whole of reality became my dream. And so now I'm speaking to you as the dreamer of the dream. You are now in my imagination. So what I need to do is close the link between good and evil. And I've chosen several people around the world who tonight are going to become angels. And we're all going to take part in this mm. cosmic battle of good and evil. And you have to go and sacrifice yourself. You're going to walk to Camden, that clothes shop that you know of, you're going to walk in, 
even though it's three o'clock in the morning, he's going to be open. He said, it's very important. You don't turn around. Very, very expressly said, do not turn around. Go to the back of the store. You'll see a suit hanging up. Put the suit on. He said, as soon as you put the suit on, that's when you turn around. And he said, that's when the whole of reality will snap into my, my new reality and we'll get rid of evil. I was weeping in my bedroom, like sobbing and weeping, thinking yeah. that this is, yeah. this is all part of this elaborate sort of ethereal mm. plan to battle evil in the world. It was just extraordinary. I got up and got ready and walked to Camden. You know, I don't. I don't remember getting there, but when I did got when I got there, it was fucking obviously the fucking place was closed, and I, I, I mean I was really scared then. I was very scared. I didn't know who I was, where I was, I didn't sure. know what was going on, and um, yeah, it was a very scary night. But that was the last. That was the night before I was sectioned. So that's probably okay. at the height of my psychosis. You were sectioned once, and then you were. You were brought in again. It was your mother that really kind of nursed you through to recovery. Is that right? I was sectioned twice, once in London, and then for a second time in yeah. in Birmingham. And, yeah. and then never, never, never really, there was no follow-up. It was just my mum basically um, watching me like a hawk. Yeah, and... this, this blew my mind. The, the lack of aftercare that you had. Yeah, oh, my crazy. God. So you're just brought in. You're given all these incredibly strong drugs and just told to go off and be okay with no explanation of what the hell no, just happened to I had you. no idea also it's, again it's, as it's worth men- mentioning I was massively over medicated and this is only yeah. something that I found out literally last year when I gave my medical records to a friend who's a clinical psychologist she actually looked through my medical records and she said I cannot believe the doses you were given she said you were literally given three times the legal limit of some of these drugs and again that's that's to do with fear fear of a large yeah. black yeah. man on the wandering around the ward who's clearly disturbed so let's just knock him out uh, and, and and that's one of the things about the book that i'm really proud of is that it has cracked open this conversation in amongst the mental health practitioners sure. now people are having that discussion they're saying well hang on a minute this is routinely done so let's examine why yeah. why we do it and there has mm. been conversations around why uh, predominantly white staff over-medicate black patients. So I want to talk about the documentary and everything you learned upon doing that. But just in terms of getting to the point from you being 23 and sectioned and being in a really ill to then being this incredibly successful actor. I mean, it's such a extreme journey that you've taken. And without going into the granular, I suppose, like, how did you get there? Like, how do you feel like you were managed psychologically to be strong enough to get out of that and then become the actor that you are? I don't really know. And, and, and you know, again... My therapist t- tells me, points to that as, as a testament to my resilience and yeah. says, says, you know, if ever you're in a jam, if ever I feel like I can't do something, if ever I feel a little bit, you know, nervous about going into a situation, I think about exactly what you just say, said. And I go, I know, I've got myself through the most extraordinarily difficult situation and, and, re- and rebuilt my career. That's, that's tells me I've got, the toolkit, the toolbox, to be able to get through any situation. But I do think there was an element in, in that recovery, Annie, of me, once again, like I said to you, shoving everything back in the cupboard. Okay. And, and just closing the door. Got you. And just going, let me just get on with it. Let me just get on with my life. Yeah. And, you know, and there's, there's a certain experience that you learn through that process of breaking down, of deconstructing. Which is almost the same process as drama school. Drama school, right. you know, you go to drama school with an image of who you are and they kind of deconstruct you and then say, well, you can, maybe you're like this. And I'm amazed at just how many people, young, particularly young black people, come out of drama school and have psychotic breakdowns. Wow. Because you are deconstructed and told to look at yourself in a slightly different way. And that's exactly what happened throughout my psychosis, but in a much more 
frightening and, I guess, brutal way. Mm. But having shoved everything in the cupboard, I then just sort of got on with my career. And luckily, I was reasonably successful. So I just sort of got on with the job. Mm. The documentary and the book has been my opportunity to open that cupboard. Mm. And um, it's been a difficult process the last couple of years, but I feel all the better for it now. Now there's nothing in the cupboard that I haven't seen. Now mm. I've, I've had a chance to pull everything out, look in all the drawers. Mm. There's nothing that scares me anymore. I'm sort of, I'm much more settled with who I am. Uh, so the process has led to a, a, a strengthening. We learn so much. It feels like alongside you when we're watching the documentary. Um, and one of the big things we learn is just the kind of cultural context around your own personal story. So you realising mm. that this was not just an isolated incident of you. This was an incident that was happening in, in huge numbers to young black people in Britain. Can you tell us a bit about what you learned Black people are four times more likely to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act than white people and ten times more likely to have a mental health issue than white people right. in this country, which I found quite staggering. It, staggering is, sta- it is staggering. But then, yeah. as I say, I place myself in the situation and I write very much about, and it's not meant to be critical, gr- growing up in a, in a white environment, in a, in, a, in, a, in a white space, in a white culture, where you are routinely othered. I mean, I find it incredible when I watch these debates on television where a black person will say, well, I find that racist. And lots of white people attack them and say, no, it isn't. And I think, how the fuck do you know? You have no, you have no, absolutely no right to question anyone on that. And, and, ever. and it, it just drives, but that's what drives you nuts. Yeah. It's like, I it's think... gaslighting. You're being gaslit. Majorly gaslit. So, so I'm living in a place that sort of denies my reality, or constantly denies my reality all the time, constantly denies that there is an issue at play, refuses to acknowledge that issue, and if they do, it's begrudgingly. Constantly battling that is mm. enormously dis- difficult for anybody. And one of the things I've realised is that you have to be enormously resilient as a black person to just survive. You have to be yeah. enormously resilient, mentally strong, just to cope with it. I read a, a Jamaican a psychiatrist who came to the UK and, and actually was, had his work rubbished. Had a very, very difficult time here in the UK trying to get the psychiatric community to understand what he was talking about and, and left very bruised. But he, he came up with a, something called the roast breadfruit syndrome. What he realised was that black people taken out of their natural their natural habitat from Africa and taken to major European cities, uh, major white metropolises, tend to experience increased levels of mental ill health. Mm -hmm. So when you grow up in an an environment where you are othered, it's not your environment, what he found was in America and in Britain, there were huge elevations in the numbers of black people who were suffering from mental ill ill health. Mm -hmm. Way less than the Caribbean, even less in Africa. So that would, that would tell you that in a majority brown climate, brown people experience less mental health yeah. problems yeah. because we are in, in amongst our own. There's a very different power structure at play. It's when we are, when we are growing up in a, in a predominantly white space where you're othered, where you have to deal with these constant barbs, these constant rejections, mm-hmm. constant death by a thousand cuts, that's when it becomes increasingly difficult to maintain mental health. Mm. But that, again, that's the other thing that I'm very pleased about with the book. Because even though it's a taboo subject, previously a taboo subject, it has got people talking about black mental health. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, I get all these young people coming up to me saying, now, oh, thank you for doing that. You know, thank you for broaching that. Because I feel a bit anxious or I suddenly feel, sometimes feel a bit, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. Yeah. And, you know... I don't know who to turn to. I don't know what's you know, so. Yeah. So I'm really glad that the subject's been broached. You know. Yeah, it's wonderful. One of the people you speak to, brilliant woman. It, it, she calls it the everyday struggle. So just this, this kind of a whole extra layer of stress that you have to go through being black in the UK, 
just in terms of, you know, what you're saying in terms of being othered. But I'm interested, David, in your experiences of America then, because with your biggest change in adulthood, you talk about getting the part of David Estes in Homeland. And Mm. just your Mm. comparisons from America to the UK in terms of how they treat people of colour and also just, just how much more forward the conversation is in America. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a, there's a hell of a lot, lot of problems there as well. Sure. I mean, what, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sugarcoating it, but yeah. I think the conversation on race is much more advanced That's it. over there. And you have these enormous black institutions, whether it's black church or whether it's be black colleges, you, you have a bona fide black community there, which is not just working class, you've got a mid- black middle class, you've even got a black upper class. So there's success, there's advancement there in the American culture. I feel very visible there. I right. feel much more visible. Right. You know, you turn your TV on and you'll see authoritative, central, leading black figures. You even see a black president. You see people with power. That's not quite the case here. I think I did a documentary a couple of years ago, Will Britain Ever Have a Black Prime Minister, it was called, I think. Mm. And um, it, it just took you through the steps that one would, if a black person were to become prime minister, the, the seven steps that they would have to take in order to become prime minister mm. and they're all really difficult for first of all i think it was something like half like 60 percent of black children in this country are born into poverty yeah uh by the time you're five again many predominantly white households middle class parents are grow up around books and people are used to talking and conversation then they go to very good fee-paying schools which very sure. few black people can access from those fee-paying schools they go to top rated universities, mm. and then they go on to get, you know, connected jobs in the higher echelons of those. And, and th- those routes to the top are very exclusive. And because of the class system here that we have and the privilege system that we have here, they, those systems tend to exclude uh, people of colour, uh, purely on a, sometimes just purely on an economic basis. Yeah. But uh, it's just very difficult for us to access those worlds. So... It's very difficult for us to climb the ladder here, very difficult for us to get into those rooms that people in America are just in all the time because um, it's much more of a meritocracy over there. Mm. From Homeland, you know, I'm playing an authoritative central role, head of the CIA. If I was to be cast as the head of MI6, somebody at the Daily Mail would go, well, of course, there's not really any black people at MI6. There'd be a huge debate about it on Channel 5, yeah. on, on Radio 5. Oh, there's no black spies. There's no real black yeah. spies in, in England. He couldn't, play, he couldn't play James Bond because there's no... James Bond's not really black. There'd be this ridiculous debate about it. Whereas in America, they just don't care. They will... You know, again, if you can see it, you can be it. There are more reasons to do it in America rather, rather than here. There are so many reasons why you shouldn't do it or that you can't do yeah. it. Uh, or they, they look for those reasons why you can't do it in this country. So And it's such a shame. It's such a shame. There's so many black actors who've had to do what you've done, which is to move away in order to get a bigger breadth of parts and more opportunities. Um, David, we had this amazing woman on this podcast a few weeks ago called Emma DeBerry, who's an Irish academic. Um, and she wrote the book, What White People Can Do Next, um, From Allyship to Coalition, which was a really big uh, piece of academia in the Black Lives Matter movement but she talked really interestingly Mm. about there's a whole new generation of black Irish and she was comparing the black Irish to the black English people and she was saying that what she has discovered is that black Irish people seem to be very very proud of their Irishness they are embracing the Irish language Mm. they're doing Irish dancing they you know they're doing like rap music but they're rapping in Irish and there's there's a kind of pride in being able to call themselves Irish and black but she yeah. hadn't seen that in English people of colour, in that kind of maybe maybe no. British, but not the word English. And I was interested in what you thought of that. Uh, I mean, look, the first chapter of my book is There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack. And that was drilled into me as a kid, that you do not belong. Our, our Minister of Equality is Kemi Badenoch, who refuses to believe in systemic racism. So <sighs> there, there is a certain type of black person who... Assimilates to a point where they, they almost aren't black, where where they sort of, you know, kind of wrap themselves in the Union Jack and wrap wrap themselves in the English identity, but somehow they appear inauthentic. Mm. Whereas you've got the other other side of British people who um, embrace their blackness and embracing their blackness, it almost seems to uh, 
cancel out the Englishness, which, which is bizarre. The, the English is to sort of it almost deny that racism exists. I mean, look at the Sewell report. Anybody who took oh, anybody yeah. who had anything to do with that Sewell report, I mean, it was a non it was a nonsense. And to say that systemic racism doesn't exist, it was harmful more mm. than anything else. Yeah. I mean, if you want if you want to subscribe to that those thoughts, that you go ahead. But I don't think. For me, they're not being authentic. Mm. In order to embrace that way of thinking, you have to deny a whole element of your blackness and a whole element of the black experience in order yeah. to accept the kind of the idea that, yes, there's, England is this wonderful place and open and accepting and tolerant, and I can't really subscribe to that. I was thinking about this the other day. I'd bought an Irish rugby shirt. I'd worn an Italian football shirt. I've never owned an English football shirt. Never. Never. And I don't know why that is. I feel, it feels somehow, I don't know. I, I, I feel almost uncomfortable. And that's quite sad. It's incredibly sad. It's quite sad. When you think about your life here and your contributions and, and, and everything that you've done for perpetuating this uh, like amazing image of what Britain looks like you know what I mean and it's like you not being able to feel English is fucking awful it's not okay and Mm. I know it's not just Mm. you I know it's so many people um but it just goes to show how much work there is to still do you know for and and I don't mean from you I mean from from the systems around you look when you're abroad David do you say that you're British or English funnily enough when I'm abroad I put on my most cut glass English voice, particularly in America, because they they love it, and they and they oh, oh they love it they I'm, love I'm, it. I'm sort yeah. of an, I'm sort of an exotic other. If I'm pulled over by the police over there, I'm terribly sorry, officer. They <laughs> completely spins their heads. Somehow they go, oh, it's English. Oh, oh my God, where are you from? I'm from London. Oh, oh, and then they suddenly just get completely disarmed because yeah, they they, they presume they're talking to a person as opposed to you know, whatever they might consider black people to normally be, which is a bit bizarre. But, I mean, I, I, I've, I've found it incredibly disarming to use my English accent in America, <laughs> which is probably why... And that's probably something to do with the fact what, with why there's sometimes a bit of conflict between um, um, black Americans and, and black English people, because... Um, and there is, a little bit, there is a little bit of conflict there, particularly in the acting community. You know, Americans feel that we're, we're not authentically black, because we don't right. have, we, we don't experience life in, in, in a similar way. And we don't. And, you know, the racism there is much more palpable, much more in your face, mm. much more brutal. Mm. Uh, so, so we both have the same skin colour, but we've experienced life in a very different way. we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns David, last question, and this relates to the change that you'd like to see. So you said for that, that you would like there to be less stigma around mental health and to find ways to open discussions around the subject. And I was reading your Guardian article, I'm just going to read a gorgeous quote from it, where you say, all we can do is keep shedding more light in the hope that it's enough to keep the darkness at bay. Um, is this how you bear bear it all by sharing so. it all? I think so. And, you know, like yourself, you bring a bit of magic with your... With your with your podcasts and um, allowing people to talk and hopefully bring a bit of light into the world. And, you know, I really appreciate mm. you asking me to, to sit here and talk to you today. That's all we can do. Because it, mm. if we don't, it's unbearable. It's unbearable. I mean, those first few weeks of the, in, you know, special military operation, I was depressed. Mm. I, I, I got really depressed. I couldn't believe the pictures I was seeing and the, the, the horrendous human suffering that I was seeing, I found it really depressing and I had to stop watching mm. and just mm. just thought, well, I need to 
be able to just do what I can, what I can to put some light into the world. Because if I if I don't, I'm going to throw yourself under a bus. But you know, because it's yeah. it's unbearable. So we shed light where we can. We do good where we can. Whatever little way that we can is to to shed a little light. I think that's all we can do to sort of, as as I say, keep keep the sort of big bad wolf at bay. Because sometimes it does become a little too heavy. And um, yeah, I know a lovely black lady stopped me in 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 the park the other day, and she said, oh, "I want to be like you." She said, "I said, what do you mean?" She said, "Oh, well, you know, I I saw your program, and you know, you, you don't take medication anymore." And I said, "No," I said, "I'm," you know, I said, "I explained to her that." There's about 15% of people who don't take medication anymore. She said, well, I still do. And I said, well, that's okay. I said, just keep, you know, I said, just keep taking it. Don't not take it. Because the minute mm. you stop taking it, that's when you're going to have problems. And she said, yeah, I've, I've found that. But I want to be like you, she said. I said, well, maybe one day you will. But just for now, do me a favour. Yeah. Keep taking the tablets. And she kind of, we both yeah. laughed. And she, you know, kind of, that was that, was, that, was that little, little bit of interaction. But it's great that people... Be, you know, she saw me and felt obliged to come and approach me because, and I think if I hadn't have done that documentary, if I'd just been David Hare with the actor celebrity, I wouldn't have had any of those interactions and, and this mm. discussion wouldn't have got out there. So I'm very pleased that it has and I'm very glad that people feel that they can talk to me about those subjects because maybe they, they, they wouldn't have spoken to other people about it. Yeah. Well, um, on behalf of the listeners, um, I would just like to say thank you for for exposing yourself in such a way and and kind of sharing this journey with with the world and allowing people to be seen and heard and to feel like they can talk about this stuff. It's so beneficial and useful to so many people. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much, David, for your time and, and your story today. Thank you. The first thing I would recommend you do after listening to this conversation with David is to go and seek out his memoir. It's called Maybe I Don't Belong Here. It's been used as a mental health resource around the world now and it has helped countless amount of people. We'll put a link to buy it in the show notes. Do go read it crucial reading I think and if you need help with your mental health or have been affected or know someone who has been affected by the topics raised in this episode the Samaritans can be reached on 116123 again check the show notes for details outside the UK and Ireland so next week we have a very different conversation Uh, Joe Lysett describes himself as a comedian painter filmmaker sculptor television presenter poet gardener dietitian radio presenter tuning fork fiat punto manual and queer and i think that's about all you need to know for now seriously though joe lysett will be with you talking about some of his biggest personal changes in his life and speaking brilliantly and candidly about them all do not miss it and thank you for listening as always it's such a buzz to hear your messages about how you're getting on with the episodes please make sure you rate and subscribe to changes or just follow it on whatever platform you're on so that you're notified when a new episode drops it's very appreciated changes is produced by louise mason through din productions thank you so much and take care you lot Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.